Good morning. How are we doing this morning? If you're visiting, we're thankful you're here with us. Uh, I hope that we get to encourage you in some way. Uh, sorry, song leader, I kind of uh, interrupted you a little bit, and uh, he knows what he's doing. I was trying to be helpful, and uh, I wasn't so helpful. Today we are wrapping up our sermon series in uh, looking at baptism. Next week we're going to have a guest speaker from Eastern European Missions, uh, so we can look forward to that. And then we're going to start into the book of Deuteronomy, believe it or not. We're going to look at holiness and what God says about holiness. So there's a lot that we we can learn. So last week, we talked about the ways that baptism, specifically adult immersion uh, into the water, and then being raised up out of the water, that tells the story of baptism. There are different things that we read about baptism in the Bible. There are aspects of it that are like a marriage. It talks about baptism as a new birth, a birth into a new kind of life. Uh, your baptism is a death and a burial and a resurrection. Is, has your baptism told that story? And then uh, also the scriptures talk about baptism as something that washes and purifies us. It deals with sin. So, for example, Romans 6, 3 and 4 says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So baptism, it tells the story of Jesus' life. It tells the story of the gospel. Where Jesus uh, was crucified, he died, he was buried in a grave, and then he was resurrected to new life, Our baptism tells that story as well. We have an old life that has been cut off. We die with Christ. We go through a burial of sorts. When we pass under water, we are buried with water, and then we are raised to live a new kind of life. So this is not a new teaching in this church. And, uh, like, this is something. This is a teaching tool that is used for our Sunday school classes. The gospel reenacted, a death, a burial, and a resurrection. The gospel reenacted in baptism. So this is not new stuff I'm bringing. This has been a part of what we've been teaching and uh, 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 part of what our instruction has been in our Sunday school programs here at church as well. Well, not only is the method of baptism by immersion uh, brought forward in uh, Uh, the practice of immersion. It tells a story, but the method is also uh, tied to the actual meaning of the word in Greek, and I don't spend a lot of time, you know, bothering you with this stuff usually, Uh, but the word for baptism in Greek is baptizo. It means to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. And so if God had wanted a different method of baptizing, then it would have been reflected in uh, different words being used. There were words in Greek to describe all of this stuff. To pour, for instance, it's the word ekeo, and to pour, um, from the Greek to pour out. 
And if they wanted to say sprinkle, they could say rantizo, which is a Greek word for sprinkling something, like in a sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood. So when the writers of the New Testament speak of baptism, they mean immersion, because that is what that word means. Baptizen actually means to be dipped, or think of it as like uh, uh, sloshed around even. You go under, and like when you're washing laundry under the water, something's getting cleaned, and then it's pulled up out of that water. Uh, Those are all uh, related to that word, baptism. So most people in the early church knew Greek. And so when they would hear the word baptize, everyone knew what that meant. But then Greek gave way to Latin and other languages, uh, national languages, uh, and that meaning was somehow uh, not understood the same way. So when we hear the word baptize, that could, that could mean different things for us because that is actually a transliteration of the Greek word. Um, and why did the, they, when they translated the Bible into English, why did they choose to transliterate that Greek word instead of actually just translating it, dip or plunge? You know, I think maybe established church practice uh, was different at that time and that avoided one kind of conflict, but it also brought a certain kind of confusion, maybe. Um, And so, like, I would think about uh, those passages that talk about baptism. Uh, Repent and be baptized. You know, the way the ancients would hear that, it would be like, repent and be plunged for the remission of your sin. Uh, uh, here's water, what's, presenti- what's preventing me from being dipped in, uh, in the, Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus? So it would have had that kind of, under- everyone would know the understanding or have the understanding of what that word meant. So that's literally the etymological kind of roots of baptism. It's a transliteration of the actual Greek word. All right. So enough on that. Historically speaking, in the New Testament and the earliest centuries of the church, the practice of baptism was exclusively immersion, going down into the water. Uh, There was not a practice in the early church of infant sprinkling. So Uh, I know these aren't Bible verses, but maybe this gives you a window into early church history. The early church fathers wrote some about this, and here's some quotes. And this is just to help illustrate that early on in the church, the practice was immersion. So from the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, Blessed are those who place their hope in his cross and descended into water, We descended into the water full of sins and uncleanliness, and we ascended bearing reverence in our heart and having hope in Jesus in our spirit. This is one from uh, Justin Martyr and his apology. Then they led us by, then, then they are led by us to where there is water, and in the manner of the new birth by which we ourselves were born again, they are born again. For at that time they obtained for themselves the washing in water in the name of God, the Master of all and Father, 
and of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. For Christ said, uh, for Christ said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then one other here from Irenaeus, early uh, writing in the church. Now this is what faith does for us. As the elder, the disciples of the apostles have handed down to us, first of all, it admonishes us to remember that we have received baptism for the remission of sins in the name of God the Father and in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became incarnate and died and was raised, and in the Holy Spirit of God, and that this baptism is the seal of eternal life and is rebirth into God. So in the early centuries of the church, this is the kind of language that was being used. Uh, So I think as we read about baptism in the New Testament, we get the idea that baptism is the way a person becomes a part of the body of Christ. Uh, Strictly speaking, the Bible doesn't talk about church membership as something that is bestowed on someone by pastors or elders or ministers or evangelists. It's not up to some committee's vote or some kind of group consensus. How does a person become a part of the church? They're baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Becoming a part of the church universal is something that happens in baptism. And in recognition of this, uh, we here at the Eugene Church of Christ, the elders uh, and I have decided to stop talking about membership in terms of things like photos on the board out there, Uh, access to member directories, the church Facebook page, and things like that. You know, we're not, at the end of the day, the ones who pick and choose who gets to be a part of the body of Christ. So instead, in our language, you're going to hear the elders, and I use this language of those who identify with the local congregation meeting here, uh, who are under the oversight of this eldership. There's a church universal out there, And we're just one little part of that. And we are thankful for those who identify with this congregation. And, uh, but strictly speaking, it is the Lord who adds people to his body. Uh, I think that that's uh, uh, the biblical uh, narrative, what it expresses. So what about the age of baptism? Biblical baptism is not for infants. Now, it's hard to talk about these things because even in this group, there's a lot of traditions and histories that are represented. We're not questioning the motives or the hearts of those who practice infant baptism. We're not diminishing the faith of parents nor attacking the genuineness of the faith of those who uphold infant baptism. And we're not criticizing those who want to dedicate their children to God. But Baptism is not the way that we do that, biblically speaking. So we're not on the attack with this. We're trying to articulate rather as clearly as possible uh, what the scriptures actually teach and what the scriptures actually say. I have a responsibility to articulate what the New Testament teaches in the clearest way possible. 
and where the rubber meets the road for me is that I believe that the Bible must inform any tradition that we have. And if the tradition that I hold is in conflict with the Bible, then that tradition is wrong. That's my hermeneutic. We've talked about this in weeks past. And so I want to follow as closely as I can, under, as clearly as I can understand it and as closely as I can do it in this day and age. Uh, I want my tradition to follow what the scriptures say. So uh, the scriptures seem to uh, indicate that personal belief in Jesus is necessary for baptism. In the longer ending of Mark's gospel, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then Peter describes baptism as the point at which a person was saved because it was at that time that they pledged a good conscience to God. 1 Peter chapter 3 and Acts 22.16, if you want to reference those. I think the clear inference of these scriptures is that only those capable of personally believing in Jesus, pledging a good conscience, and calling on his name were baptized. So a, 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 a baby cannot express personal belief. They cannot pledge a good conscience. And they cannot, uh, they're not capable yet of personally calling on his name. Another thing about baptism is it's associated with repentance. So baptism is a pledge of repentance as well. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter told at least 3,000 people that they were to repent and be baptized. To be baptized, a person should be at a point of moral development where they realize the wrongs that they've committed and their need to repent of their actions and be right with God. Uh, you have to live a little bit of life before you understand some things about right and wrong. A child is innocent, and as a child grows up, they'll, they'll start to lose some of that innocence, and uh, there will be a desire, uh, uh, usually, to find ways to, to move toward purity and, and, and get away from uh, things that they believe they've done wrong. So, uh, this doesn't happen all at once. Um, biblical faith is one in which the person enters into a saving relationship with God only by their personal choice. Uh, so the people who would be eligible for baptism are those who are old enough to make that personal decision to turn away from their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord. You know, I, I think this also explains uh, some of the etymology of the word and some of the story of baptism and what it, what it represents. It explains the reason why infant baptism did not become a part of the common practice of the church historically until 100, 100 years, the first time we hear about infant baptism was 100 years after the, the New Testament had been written. Uh, uh, this is the first clear inference of it, and we only know about it because uh, the church theologian, uh, a guy named Tertullian, he opposed it on the grounds that it would be safer and more profitable to wait until faith is formed in a believing adult. 
infant baptism did not become an established practice for the church, like the normal kind of way of doing things, uh, until the fourth century. So it was hundreds of years after uh, what originally started. Well, then what about what age a person should be to be baptized? Old enough to confess the name of Jesus? Old enough to be able to pledge your own life to him? To own up to your sin and your need of repentance? And to understand what you are committing yourself to? Those are all, I think, essential parts uh, that would speak to uh, when, a tr- when a person has the maturity uh, necessary to enter into uh, baptism. I think of baptism as the most grown-up and important life decision a person will make. It is something that we can choose at a young age, and that, that commitment does carry us through our, our life, uh, but it is, it is a grown-up and serious decision. I think it's the most important decision that we can make, one of them. Uh, so the goal for our kids is not for them to have a special moment with Jesus and check off a box and then go on living your own life. It is the beginning of a lifetime of discipleship. Uh, through the grace of Jesus Christ that will continue on into all eternity. Parents, you have a big role in this and determining this. You know the maturity and character of your kids. You are navigating a, a fine line, it feels like sometimes, with your kids' maturity and their understanding and helping them count and weigh out the gravity of their commitment in that decision. That's on one hand, and yet on the other side of that, there's, if there's the desire that's born there, even at a young age, you do not want to squelch that. You want to help culture, nurture that and develop that. There's growing that can be done. Um, the Bible does not talk about a specific age of accountability or something like that. Perhaps you could look at something like a Jewish bar mitzvah and get an idea of maybe ballpark, uh, but that's not binding on the church. We are the church, and we are under the law of the Spirit, and we need to be led by the Spirit. So think about these things and, and weigh them out. It's good for families to wrestle with this. It's good to, to carry these discussions with each other. Uh, and find those times when it's, you know, and if you're older, I would say, uh, and the Lord's put that on your heart to do this, go for it. Don't delay. You're giving up something, and you're taking hold of a new kind of life. Of course, uh, you know, with families, with kids, if there's a network of a support where that ongoing discipleship is able to take place and people are able to be continued to be nurtured. You know, maybe baptism at a little bit earlier age is not out of the question. If you've got questions about any of this, I would say, you can come talk to me. Come talk to any of our elders. We're happy to, to journey with you on that and trying to figure these things out. Baptism is tied to repentance. 
When we are baptized, we turn away from all other relationships, activities, and things that could or might be considered as idols, which may rival our devotion to Jesus. When you make the decision to be baptized into Christ, that is your lined-in-the-sand moment where you say, it's Jesus' way. And nothing is allowed to get in the way of that being primary and first in your life. It's hard to live up to that. And we tend to get flaky about that commitment. And that's why we need repentance. And repentance is a great gift. Repentance is, I am doing it your way now, Lord, and I'm cutting off that old stuff. But you're going to need repentance constantly in your life. Um, repentance feels like a heavy thing to us sometimes. And it is associated with remorse. Because usually the way that the Holy Spirit works in our life, he brings up guilt of our own sin, and he will show us our sin and it feels like a heavy thing, but repentance, biblically, is also a joyous thing because stuff that was hidden comes to the light. Uh, it, it brings clarity for moving forward. Uh, Luke fifteen seven, as Jesus says, there is great joy in heaven when a sinner repents. There's also, a, it, repentance is a joyous thing, and it's a beautiful thing. And when you shy away from being able to own your mistakes and say, I want to turn this around, you're, you cannot live as a healthy disciple of Jesus without repentance. Repentance is at the heart of everything we're doing here. God offers us healing from our sin but by faith, we have to be willing to give up a sinful lifestyle and things that are against uh, what he has revealed in the scriptures. So there's always, you know, there's things that we take up in this life as discipleship, as Christians, and there's also things that you have to let go of. So let's look at a few of these verses uh, that talk about repentance. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We're living in a jacked up time. That's what it feels like to me. Geopolitically, in this, politically in this country, in the city that we live in, and everything going on, I want a time of refreshing for this church but there needs to be repentance. Some people have gotten very comfortable living with secret and hidden sin and just bringing it with them and not having a second thought about it. God cares about that. You need to own your need for repentance. Acts 20, 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Acts 26, 20. 
first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to, all the, and to the, the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Acts 2, 37 and 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is something that we do before baptism. I would say it's also something we do again and again as we enter into this new life of discipleship. It's our way of adjusting our heading when we get off course. And so uh, repentance is a wonderful gift from God that makes the life of discipleship a a possibility for us. So let me also say a word about the Holy Spirit, because we read these passages about baptism. A lot of times we read also uh, that the Holy Spirit is involved in what's going on there. The Word of God says that when we are born of water, we are also born of the Spirit, John 3, 3 through 5. And Paul describes our reception of the Spirit as a sort of stamp or seal of the image of God in our lives. So uh, a lot of times in Scripture, our baptism is associated with with, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism marks a new birth. It marks the forgiveness of sins. It marks this gift of the Spirit now available to us in baptism, where we are sealed. Uh, It's a gift that we are given. The Holy Spirit is a teacher and a guide, and that process of Him being a part of our life in a special way, it's initiated by baptism. That's what's normally indicated in the Scripture. So the the Spirit of God was normally given to a believer at the point of water baptism, according to Acts 2.38, Titus 3.5. You can reference John 3.3-5 as well. So in the following passages, notice this dynamic interplay between water and the Spirit. But with the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us generally, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. <coughs> But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Uh, the normative description in the Bible uh, is that baptism and in water and baptism in the Spirit, they occur at the same time. Uh, that's what this is described in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and thir- 39, where the Spirit is given at the point of water baptism. There are exceptions to this, though, in the book of Acts. And they, <coughs> let me just say, those exceptions 
seem tied to extraordinary moments in the church, in the developing church. Let me grab my cough drop here. <coughs> I must be getting old. The throat doesn't have the, the same horsepower it used to have. Excuse me for that. So some of these exceptions, uh, think about the major movements in church history. One, one is the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, where the Spirit comes considerably after water baptism. And then in Acts chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius, the Spirit comes first. Gentiles are being added. The Spirit had to lead the church into that. Gentiles are being added to the body of Christ. Uh, and we know that the Holy, when the Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles, it was showing the church the way that, that things were going. This is not just a Jewish uh, sect anymore. This is something worldwide that is happening. So the Spirit was poured out prior to water baptism, and, uh, uh, and then when Peter sees it, he's like, well, with, we need to baptize these people. We need to get this done. And so they take care of it. But I think, I think if you look scripturally, normally uh, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and uh, so baptism by water and baptism by the Spirit, if you want to say it that way, they are in connection with each other in conjunction with one another. Water baptism is what we choose and what we do. What God does with the gift of the Holy Spirit, what God does in the, with uh, washing away our sins, that's his side of everything going on. We don't control that. So these are just uh, some examples that we see in the book of Acts. So if you're just looking at Acts and trying to notice patterns. You're looking at the New Testament and trying to notice patterns of how this kind of works. What is the process of the way this all happens? So uh, in, in our movement, or, you know, this is not just our movement, but Christians just reading their Bibles have noticed certain uh, patterns that have come up, a picture of how a person enters into this new life of discipleship, certain things that have to happen or are going on. And uh, I'm going to show you from the book of Acts that you'll be able to see this a little more clearly coming up. A person hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work in that somehow, something they have a uh, uh, a process of belief is something that happens. Sometimes it comes quickly. Sometimes people grow into it. You hear, then you believe, and then the desire for repentance. You need to repent of your sin, cutting off an old life, uh, public confession. Uh, we give this confession of the lordship of Jesus, and then a person is baptized, and that is the way that they enter into this new life of faithful discipleship. And so, uh, let me just put this up that you can kind of see this. This is uh, from the book of Acts. 
So here's the text. Here's the, the chapters, of what was going on, and the different things that happened. In, uh, there's only so many categories that we could put in there. Uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, the day of Pentecost. They heard, they believed, they repented, they were baptized. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes in immersion, and it's for the remission of sins. Number uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, Samaria, they heard, they believed. There's a baptism, they were baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes after immersion in that case. Uh, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch there, they heard and they believed. Uh, it doesn't talk about repentance, but in 837, it talks about a confession being made and then uh, baptized, and then the salvation language, rejoicing, is happening. Saul, uh, his conversion, Cornelius, Lydia, the jailer, uh, Acts chapter 18, and then uh, the Ephesian disciples in Acts chapter 19. So not all of these are exhaustive where it's like every, we read about everything that's happening. But as you look at some of the, these key conversions... Uh, you get an idea of some of the movement that's taking place. That there are certain things that, that movement is here. They hear, they believe, they repent, they confess, they're baptized. The Holy Spirit comes. They're, they're a part of the body of Christ. Um, so what about things like the sinner's prayer? I said I would talk about this. I don't really want to, but maybe for the sake of clarity, I will just briefly. The sinner's prayer is only about 100 years old, believe it or not. Uh, and it's something that is taught in a lot of evangelical churches. So instead of following what to me seems like the clear pattern in the New Testament, uh, some churches encourage people to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior just through just saying a prayer. Uh, in this prayer, people invite Jesus to come into their hearts. Some call it asking Jesus into their hearts. Some call it the sinner's prayer. So the process would be someone hears the word of God, they believe, and then they say this sinner's prayer. And I don't have a problem with that, except that there are other things that need to happen yet. So I would say that the sinner's prayer is great. Say a sinner's prayer. If you feel convicted, pray. But there's still things that need to happen. There's repentance that needs to take place. There's a confession that needs to take place. There's a, a baptism needs to take place to tell that story of the gospel. So when you say, you can hear and believe and then just say a prayer and that's all that matters and the rest it doesn't matter really you if you get around to it that's great do what you need to do but uh, we've got the important part done um, that's not the example that we find in the new testament in the bible and it's interesting that some evangelical scholars are recognizing this now, and they're beginning to speak out against this idea of just asking Jesus into our hearts, and that's all we need to do. Uh, for example, a guy named J.D. Greer, who was the president of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, he wrote a book entitled, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. 
So baptism in the Bible was not something done after conversion. Baptism is how we express our faith for the forgiveness of sins, and it is how we experience conversion. And when the sinner's prayer becomes the method of receiving forgiveness of sins, that's trying to replace baptism as the method. But baptism is the method that we read about in scriptures. So let's just read some of these conversions real quickly as we wrap up this morning. When they heard this, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who welcomed his message were baptized. Acts 8, uh, 11 and 12. They listened eagerly to him, and when they believed, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 8, 13. Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed continuously with Philip. Acts 8, 35 and 36. Philip told him the good news about Jesus, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Acts 16, 14 and 15, Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us, and the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly. When she and her household were baptized, and then the passage goes on, Acts 16, 31 through 33, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. Acts 18.8, many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Acts 19.5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so as you just read through these scriptures, what it looks like to me is that when someone believed in the New Testament, people were baptized pretty quickly without delay. When the, when the Holy Spirit is working in someone's heart and they reach this conviction that I want to be yours, Jesus, I want to be a disciple of yours, baptism was the way that they entered into that new life. So what about the issue of being rebaptized? So the Apostle Paul, traveling through Ephesus, when he met men who had been followers of John the Baptist, Paul asked if they had received the Holy Spirit. And when they said that they had not even heard about the Holy Spirit, Paul instantly knew that there was a problem with their baptism. And so he begins to ask them questions. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They were about 12 men in all. From Acts chapter 19, 1 through 7, if you want to read through that yourself. If you were only baptized as a baby and that you cannot remember your own baptism, if you did not choose baptism for yourself, I would urge you to consider making this decision. Uh, 
making it more than just the tradition that I stand in that this was done to me by my parents or my church or other, being able to meet your Savior face to face and know that you have clearly chosen him and owned him uh, publicly. I think that's an important thing. If you were only baptized by sprinkling or pouring and your, your, your baptism doesn't tell the story of the death, burial, and resurrection like we read about in Romans chapter 6, I would urge you to think about that, pray about that, and consider baptism by immersion. If you heard the message of the gospel, if you believed it, and then you just said a prayer privately uh, to Jesus, a sinner's prayer or whatever, and you have never followed Jesus into the water, I would tell you that you absolutely still need to be baptized. Just do it. You know, the reason why you would do any of this, though, it's not because, you know, this is what Calvin says I should do, or this is what this church does or believes. I would just invite you, look at these passages. Spend some time in the book of Acts. And if the Lord is moving you to reconsider this, and praise be to God, it's for love of God that we would do any of this and embrace this. And uh, I want it to be a beautiful thing. That moment when we get to choose for ourselves the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When I know that this means I'm cutting off an old life, I'm repenting, and I'm living something new. When it tells the story of the gospel, and it's a death, a burial, and a resurrection, you know, it, the Lord leads us into all of this. And uh, it would be because your heart desires it would be the reason that you would do these things. And uh, I believe you will be blessed in considering these things and just being obedient and letting the Spirit have his way in whatever uh, direction he's uh, leading you. We can trust God with these things. So, uh, Dad, you can come up. That is the sermon. So we're wrapping up uh, this series today. And uh, we're going to be talking about holiness coming up. And I think it'll be, some of it will be hard, but it's going to be really good, too. I don't know if you've read much in Deuteronomy, but it's kind of like blowing my socks off. And I'm thinking, this is crazy stuff. What do we do with this? And so uh, you can pray for me as I'm trying to figure that out, too. But you cannot read those scriptures and think, you know, God's kind of wishy-washy about this stuff. He's not. He's so serious, and it's a life and death issue. And so uh, I think we'll be blessed in that discussion. So one closing quote, and we'll be done. We see baptism as the point at which we seal our decision to repent. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. 
We commit ourselves to the path of discipleship, and we receive God's forgiveness and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. These are all beautiful things. Let's not get lost in looking at specific trees in the forest. Let's just remember the beauty of what this is and what it represents for us. So uh, we always offer an invitation, and we do that because we want to know how we can pray for you if you have stuff that you want to repent of, and we can pray over you. If you have the courage, uh, we have the faith to pray for you. If you need a miracle, we were willing to pray for you. If you want to put the Lord in and baptism and enter into the story of God's people and let your life represent the story of the gospel, we can have that opportunity too, and we always do that uh, at the end of the service. You can come talk to me up front here while we sing our invitation song together. That is, that's why we call it an invitation song, because theoretically, in days past, people would actually come forward. And uh, since Stephanie has moved away to other places, we have a lot fewer people who have the courage to come and just uh, repent but, uh, or, or uh, ask for the prayers of the church or come forward. But uh, you have that opportunity, and we'll continue to have that opportunity. Let's go ahead and uh, stand and sing together.